Welcome to the Support Recovery Podcast, where we speak with parents, counselors, ministers, and other professionals to provide you with the most effective ways to support your loved one who's struggling with addiction or any other life-controlling issue. I'm your host, Michael, along uh, with Skylar Martin. And uh, today we're going to be talking about why addiction is a family problem. Um, So just from a few episodes ago, we are graced again with the smooth voices of a Mr. Mark McDonald. Hi, Mark. How are you, man? Doing well. We've gone through a lot of topics uh, at this point, and I hope everyone that's listening has been enjoying uh, all of the different areas and topics that we've been talking about. And for this one, we're, we're really going to kind of bring it home uh, on the family itself. So uh, the focus today is going to be why addiction is a family problem. Um, you know, anytime people call us, I'm sure they call your uh, organization, um, it's always, or I would say maybe nine times out of ten, it's someone else calling on behalf of someone else saying, hey, you know, this is what's going on. I think I could be wrong in this, but the statistics are about like one in three people are affected by addiction, whether they've dealt with it or they have a family, a friend, or someone who's dealt with it. I mean, that's more than three people is a, is a lot of people. So this is a real, this is a real thing. So um, why don't you kind of break the ice on this? Why don't you talk about why addiction is not just a problem for the individual? but it's a problem for the family as well. Well, there's a lot of different reasons, but one of those is the fact that nothing happens in isolation. So if there's a life-controlling problem going on, it couldn't maintain as a life-controlling problem if it was in that isolated, if it was just me that had it, without some of those enabling behaviors from other people, it couldn't exist, Hmm. okay? So for whatever that life-controlling problem is, it looks for people to endorse it, to negatively contract with it, whatever kind of word you want to call it. So as we talk about why it's a problem in the family is that the individual with a life-controlling problem truly believes that the only person they're injuring or impacting is themselves without any regard for how it's impacting anyone else. So, I mean, do you really think that people who are dealing with addiction actually are thinking about how it's damaging damaging themselves? No, I don't think that they're worried about how it's damaging themselves. Okay. Impact isn't always about damage. Gotcha. Okay. okay. I gotcha. Impact is whether it's paying off or not paying off. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So they don't believe that their behaviors impacts anyone else. That mm-hmm. level of selfishness and self-centeredness is hallmark of any life-controlling problem. Okay. I have to only do me in because my values don't allow me to do harm to other people. Okay. So I can't harm the ones I love. And if I do that, then that compromises that value. Mm -hmm. So I have to kind of change how I think and view it so it has to only be about me. So in that environment, what ends up happening is that it literally begins to draw these other people into the family who are trying to prevent their own emotional pain but also trying to prevent ongoing dramas associated with that life-controlling problem. So it brings in people who care about you, people who can finance you, uh, people who can support you as far as housing and all those other things. So it can't happen within that isolation bubble. So we're recognizing that addiction is, is more than just the individual's uh, issue, Right problem, whatever, whatever term it is. So let's talk about the family now. What are the different roles that you've seen in your experience that family members play into the dysfunctional DYS, right? The pain 
um, family system. So what what have you seen? And, and let's kind of you know go at this, uh, I guess, systematically. So what what would what would the first person or, or first uh, attribute first reaction would be from from someone in a family? Okay, the first attribute is always denial. Okay. Okay. And whether that's minimizing how big of a problem it is or rationalizing why they do it or giving excuses for it, okay? And that takes place both on the individual with the life-controlling problem as well as the family because the family, if they don't go through that level of denial, then they have to take responsibility for the behaviors that the other person's doing. Mm -hmm. Or they end up taking ownership of that person's behaviors and think that it's their fault. Hmm. So what ends up happening is you have denial on the part of the individual, and then you have this family denial that goes on also, which is just as blinding mm-hmm. um, to everyone, and it perpetuates the life-controlling problem that's happening with that individual. Okay. So if the family has hit a point where now they know, so they're past the point of denial, right? So they're at that place. What roles do you typically see within within the family? Well... Originally, let's just talk about the person with the life-controlling problem. Okay. Because they become center stage. Okay. They become the one that everything else begins to balance around. Okay? For every life-controlling problem, for it to maintain itself, there has to be an enabler. And an enabler, in the simplest terms, is just somebody who believes they're supporting the individual, but they're actually supporting the behavior. Hmm. Okay, so they enable that to continue on. So there's some manipulation that might be taking place from the person dealing with the life-controlling issue? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Because without it, he can't do his deal. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's say it's dad or junior or whoever that has that. The enabler is the person who makes excuses for them, tolerates the behavior, Mm -hmm. who uh, constantly tries to rescue them from the consequences of that behavior, who will also uh, step up and basically protect the individual from any of the things that are going on. Mm. And as a result of that, perpetuate the life-controlling problem because there's no consequences to bring that person to a place of change. Right. Okay? So the enabler experiences a whole lot of different things. Um, In some cases, they feel a sense of identity and worth. Mm -hmm. In some cases, they become a martyr where they're falling on their sword for this individual all the time and not gaining any kind of respect or anything else, which teaches the person with a life-controlling problem to misuse them. Right. Okay? Yeah. So the next one of those phases is the hero in the family whose primary purpose is to make the family look good. And they, they do very well. If they're a student, then they oftentimes are the high performers. They're oftentimes involved in sports or some type of club. The problem with the hero, though, he's spending all of his time to make the family look good, but it also provides him an escape from the drama of the family. So now, that's not just kids, though. So we're talking about... Could be dad, could be anybody. Right. So what would that look then for... And I'll, I'll give you an example. Then would that look as um, workaholic... Um, making money and getting promoted Absolutely. in jobs or pastor of a church. Um, anything that's going to be in a position where the highlight or the spotlight could be on them potentially and it distracts from 
what's really whatever's going on. Is that is that the that's Absolutely. kind of the point you're making? Okay, that's the, right. that's the dynamic of the hero. Mm-hmm. It's got to make the family look good. Mm-hmm. So no matter where they're at in that family system, right, their whole job is to make this family look good. Right. The problem with it, well, the payoff for it is them not having to be at home. Uh huh. Okay, so they can emotionally detach from all of that. The problem with it is it goes without any of their needs being met internally. So they're constantly having to get accolades from these external sources gotcha. because they don't feel okay inside. So it's like a counterfeit sustenance. Pretty much. Okay, so we have the person who's dealing with the addictive behavior. Um, you said they have the uh, enabler. Yeah, the chief enabler. The chief enabler. Okay, so other people can be enablers. All of them. All of them are, yeah. or potentially can be. Exactly. Okay. And the chief enabler, one of the things that they do is they tend to train the hero how to step up and enable. Uh, okay, explain that. If I'm the chief enabler and you're the person with the life-controlling problem, there okay. are times where I may not be available. Okay. So I have to have somebody who I can count on. To continue the to enabling. To continue this so that it doesn't get out of control. <laughs> well, that's messed up. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So basically, Skylar's in training to take over whenever I'm not available. Oh, man. That's messed up. <laughs> that's messed up. Okay. Yeah. And it, it happens really without anybody really knowing it. Yeah. But a lot of the responsibilities that the chief enabler has, because they can't take care of their own business, then becomes the responsibility of the hero. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the next person you have is the scapegoat. Okay. And the scapegoat's job primarily is to distract from, let's say, dad's addiction. Yeah. They're getting into trouble. They're involved in all these things that create drama so that nobody's focusing on the drama at hand. Mm. Okay? And they oftentimes get involved in uh, early sexual activity. They oftentimes get involved in other substance use. Mm -hmm. Uh, They may get involved in some kind of low-level criminal activity, Mm -hmm. probably acting out in school, getting into trouble. Those little distractions that require somebody to take action, but it takes away from the person with life-controlling problem. So is that almost like a, the person who's a scapegoat, do they want that? Like, does that make sense? Like, do they want that attention? Or, or they're being the scapegoat well, to distract from what the addiction is? The family only has so much attention to give. Right. Okay. So if the chief enabler's main <clears throat> focus is on the person with the life-controlling problem. Uh The hero's main focus is on getting the accolades from external, but is always having to give that support to the chief enabler. Okay. So there's not a whole lot of attention left. Left. So that person who's a scapegoat is going to find the attention wherever they they can get it. Whether it's good or bad, they don't care. They're just getting attention. Actually, their payoff is almost always going to be negative. And for some reason, there's a switch that flips that makes negative consequences and negative payoffs seem good. Wow. Okay? Yeah. So their role is fulfilled at that time because they're continually acting out. Right. And uh, because they've seen the person with the life-controlling problem have the enabling and have all of that stuff going on, they don't see why they can't get that too. Right. Okay? They tend to be very rebellious and defiant. And at the core, they're just really, really angry. 
So that person might not be getting involved in um, addictive behaviors either. That person might be just doing other things like getting detention all the time if it's a kid or always getting fired from sure. a job or stealing or whatever. Okay. Whatever it aligns <clears throat> them oftentimes with the person with the life-controlling problem. Aligns them with it? Sure, because the hero's aligned with the chief enabler. So there has to be an alignment okay. with that person. And that's rooted in is and that's rooted in attention. That's just rooted in our need to be a part of and a part of something bigger than what we are. So if dad's behavior, the person with the life controlling problem, mm -hmm. gets a lot of attention, positive or negative, right? They're going to be doing that. Okay. They're, they may be getting dad's attaboys. They may be going through a rite of passage with dad, mm -hmm. drinking with dad, or using with dad. Right. And that happens often. Right. Uh, so it's about that alignment piece oftentimes that takes place. Okay. Difference, as an adult, it may be okay. As a kid, not okay. Yeah. So it creates a whole lot of drama, and that's why it distracts from what dad may be doing. Right. Okay? Then you have the <clears throat> class clown or the mascot. Okay. Whose whole purpose is to provide humor relief. Mm-hmm. So when stress starts coming on the family because a family can only handle so much stress without breaking. Right. They provide relief by doing something really goofy. Right. Um, and it can be at any time. It may be in school. It may be Just cuts the anywhere. tension. And the whole purpose is to cut that tension and yeah. stress so that people can take a breather. Yeah. Okay. And as crazy as it sounds, it can be positive or negative. Right. And then we have the lost child who just kind of gets lost in the whole mechanism and becomes very independent, but also is probably the sickest of the whole bunch. Now, I think it's important as we're talking about this that as we're discussing these roles, this does not mean that every family has like eight people in it. No. Right? So can someone be, can someone be filling more than one of these roles? Absolutely. Okay. And for a long time, I was an only child, and I filled all of the roles, mm. depending on what was going on with my parents. Right. So when I needed to be the hero, I was. Whenever I needed to be the lost child, I was. Right. If I needed to act out and get into trouble, I could. So those things, those roles can almost rotate. Absolutely. And wow. oftentimes will. Uh -huh. And as crazy as it sounds, once the hero leaves home, the scapegoat oftentimes, if they haven't gotten so enmeshed in it, uh -huh. oftentimes becomes the hero. Wow. And then the class clown moves into the scapegoat role because his humor is no longer funny. Which, everything that you're saying now, so all these roles all orbit the addictive behavior. It's about creating balance in this, for lack of a better term, mobile. Right. Called the family mobile. Yeah. So that can be rough. It is tough. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So, all right. So we've talked about these roles, right? So here's just kind of a baseline. And I think, again, it's important to let people know that are listening these labels are they're just they're just terms. That's all that they are. So they're not these are not meant to become your identity. They're not diagnoses. They're not diagnoses. They're just saying they're recognizing if you, if one of these things was resonating with you, that's not a good thing or a bad thing. It just is. And and the purpose of it is to bring attention to it so that it, you can grow from it and go, oh man, I can't do that. I've got to pay attention to this because there's going to be opportunity that when you grow you're gonna have opportunity to slip back into those roles as well because they're comfortable and they become familiar so um so what role what roles uh, do the person who becomes addicted often play is that like a cookie cutter meaning like so you have all these roles right you were saying the scapegoat 
sometimes uh, could potentially walk down that trail, right? Um, are there other people in those roles that have a um, predisposition, a higher risk of, or any of those words you want to use to actually become addicted to something themselves? Oh, absolutely. Okay, how? Such tell, a, tell us more about that. The hero tends to become a workaholic. And that's an addiction in its own way. It's an addiction in its own way mm -hmm. or a life-controlling problem. Right. And the partners they oftentimes try to find are people who need that specific skill set, which mm -hmm. means they're looking for people who need them. Right. Okay? Not people who are their equals, but somebody who is always going to need them. Mm. Yeah. Okay? Uh, the scapegoat oftentimes searches for relationships with people who are enablers. Mm-hmm who will tolerate and put up with and even admire some of the behaviors that they're acting out, mm. okay? Uh, class, clowns, class clowns just love the attention. Yeah. So they're going to find somebody who is enamored with them. Right. So, I mean, we, we kind of pick those things up. Um, so those roles in our life... Although they may change, we tend to gravitate to a specific role that pays best for us. And tell me if I'm wrong on this. <clears throat> we can grow up in that system. That can be our experience, whatever role it is that we're playing. We can move out of that system in terms of I go to college, um, I get married, you know, I move away from wherever it is. You know, I grew up in Tampa, now I'm living in Phoenix or whatever, right? And then we enter a new relationship. And there's a huge risk that everything that we knew just kind of starts all over again because that's what our experience has been. But it's also state-dependent learning. Okay, explain that. Okay. What that means is in whatever state it is I learn best uh -huh. is the state I try to continue to keep. Okay. Because that's where learning takes place. Mm -hmm. So if I learned in a dysfunctional family, my chances of creating a dysfunctional family very strong. Are very strong yeah. because that's my learning environment. Okay. I create that state again. Yeah. Not because it's the only thing I knew, because I may have learned other things, but it's so familiar and I know the ins and outs of it so well right. that it's just easiest to have. So we know that this um, family construct is not necessarily the most conducive to growing through addiction. Right. R right or wrong, right? Um, there's people who are listening to this and could be going, yeah, that makes sense, or yeah, I know that. And it could have been something that happened 20 years ago for somebody as the, as the comedian, the clown, or the scapegoat, or whatever, right, of things going, oh, man, that, make, that just makes sense. Um, so if we know what it's not supposed to look like, what should it look like? You know, how do you get out of those things? And, and I'll give you this example. There's a um, a person that we're uh, that we're close with. Her name is Cindy Irwin, and she has this really cool example of, of a counterfeit one hundred dollar bill. And she would and she would say, um, if I was training you, if I hired you for a job at a, at a bank, and your job, your only job is to spot counterfeit hundred dollar bills, the thing I would never give you, I would never let you train with it, I would never let you touch it, is a fake one hundred dollar bill. I would only give you the real thing. So there are people who are listening to this that grew up in really healthy environments. And it might not be that now because addiction's in the middle of it and now all these roles are taking place. It could be that we grew up in this dysfunction, D-Y-S, right, the hurt. We grew up in that we're creating it again or we're living in it again. 
how do we move past that? Like, what what are the steps that we can take to say, man, I'm recognizing these things. Things do need to change. Where is your first step? Uh, again, I think the first step is just getting really honest about what that is and what it looks like. Uh, the next step is what ability do you have to change it? Mm-hmm. Because if you don't believe you have an ability to change it, you're not going to try. Right. And I think most of all, though, people have to have a desire for something different. Mm-hmm. And desire for something different can get really scary for people because they may not have had a really good model of what that looks like. Right. So they may not know what it can play into. Yeah. And that unknown can oftentimes keep people paralyzed and stuck in the same spot. Mm. Not because they don't have a desire to change the status quo, but because they don't have a place to go with it. How do we recognize the first step? How do we recognize we even need to take the step in the first place? I think that there's a lot of things. I think one of those is we need to listen to the people around us who are probably saying, you know, you got to get out of that. How do you, okay, so let's say you're listening to this and, and the situation we're talking about is not relevant to your scenario. Okay, that's very possible, but it's relevant in another scenario that you see. How do you share your heart in that to let them know, man, there's a better way? How do you even do that? How do you gently and politely interject <laughs> if you see something? It's kind of like you know, if, if you're driving down the road and there's a giant rock on the road right after a really sharp turn and you know about it and there's cars coming down the road, how do you let people know you need to be really careful on that turn because it's going to get really dicey and do it in, in a gentle way? Well, I think there's a lot of different things. Some of it depends on the urgency. If there's a big rock in the road, that's not a gentle persuasion. Okay. That's an urgency. Okay. Okay. You're getting ready to hit a big rock that's going to cause a, mm-hmm. a huge problem. Yeah. That level of urgency would require me to be a little bit more forceful. Yeah. In me helping you recognize that. Yeah. Okay. But if it's between friends, hopefully our friendship can handle my honest communication with you about what I'm seeing and feeling. Yeah. And also, my sharing with you something I may have just learned. Mm. So, such as, if somebody has listened to this and they know of somebody else that's there, they may want to refer them to listen to this. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. So now let's, let's take this a step further now. So you're in this, and you're the only one who realizes, I need to make a change. Because maybe I am an enabler. Maybe I am the hero. Maybe I'm the one dealing with the addiction. How, do you, how does that person step out of it if the rest doesn't want to change? They have to find a tremendous amount of courage mm-hmm. because changing that is a huge task. Yeah. And it's a whole lot easier to stay in that than it is to, number one, rock the boat right. and blow the whistle on that elephant that's in the living room. Yeah. Because they're going to get a lot of denial from other people. They're going to get a lot of shame and guilt messages mm-hmm. from some people. Yeah. And then their own story that they're going to tell themselves about what role they played and what blame they're going to pick up. Right. Instead of recognizing that it's just what happened. Yeah. It's not anyone's fault. Yeah. It just is. Yeah. And once I recognize that it just is and it's not my fault, then I can begin to change something. Mm-hmm. But if I think I'm inherently flawed, I don't feel like I can change. Well, what resources are there for people who want to take that step? Well, there's family counseling available in a lot of places. Uh, 
Unfortunately, insurance doesn't always pay for that. Right. Um, Let's talk on that point real quick. Can people afford not to do it? In the long run, no. And I think that that's where I want to kind of stop on that for just a second. I think when there's opportunity, we recognize we have to walk this road and we need professional help. I'm a huge advocate for if you need counseling, go do it. I've personally gone through counseling. It was a wonderful experience for me because I was a willing participant. And I had nothing. I mean, I was 21, you know, paying student loans, whatever. I didn't have any, any money in the bank. I didn't really tell my family about it. I just knew it was something I had to do. I talked to the counselor who I thought was going to be a good fit for me. They worked something out for me, and, and I still paid for it. And I had to make a decision of this is that important to do this. So don't be afraid, whoever's listening, even if there aren't a lot of financial resources, if you needed to communicate that to a counselor who maybe was referred to you saying, man, this person, Mr. So-and-so, Mrs. So-and-so, they're great, man. You need to talk to them. Just put it out there and let them know your heart and say, look, I'm dealing with this stuff. I don't have this. I I don't expect it to be free, but this is what I can do. Um, I I don't think you can afford not to do it. I agree because the cost is only going to get bigger. Whether it's, you know, just the initial contact that you have to pay for and get an assessment or whatever. But the longer it goes on, the greater the damage, yeah. the greater the financial impact. Right. I mean, I guess what's what's less expensive, going to counseling or paying a, a bail bill or something like that for jail, um, lawyer fees, any of those things, or funeral expenses. I mean, I know that's a really, that's an end game there, it's an end road, but I mean, I would much rather be paying a counselor than paying paying a funeral home. Well, and early awareness provides opportunity for early intervention and then prevention. Right. Versus trying to repair. Right. So the earlier you become aware of that and have a desire for that change, the better off you are. Which the thing we know about addiction is it's enjoyable. Like people who are in it like it. They like the feeling it gives you. They like all those kind of things. For a while. For a while. And then it you know, it goes dark. It can go very dark after that. And then we're using it to numb ourselves. And, you know, we can go down a very long trail on that. Um, but there has to be a point in someone's life where they say the cost it's going to, the cost it will cost me to change is worth the end product. It's worth getting through my, this process is worth going through because I know what it can be on the other side. And I encourage everybody right, wrong, or indifferent to do a cost-benefit analysis. Yeah. Because there is nothing in our life that, number one, doesn't have a cost. Right. And does not have a benefit or a consequence. Yeah. All of our behaviors have that. Yeah. So if you're wanting to change, do a cost-benefit analysis. Well, and I think, you know, in, in the business world, all of us are professionals, right? We all go to work, you know, the, whether it's McDonald's, Taco Bell, uh, or a bank, or Google. Everybody's going to work. When we're going to work, there's some level of preparation we're doing to go to work, right? We have to put that same level of preparation into our own family life and approach it intentionally because we're doing that with all these other areas in our life, but it's almost like we get tired and then we don't do it in our own home. I think that's just kind of a misbelief that we have that the home takes care of itself or somebody steps up to take care of it. Right. When in fact they don't. Yeah. It really falls apart. Yeah. And then everybody's surprised when it does. Right. Because everybody thought somebody else was doing that job. Right. And you have to take a personal role in making sure that your family gets well. Yeah. And there's a cost to that. Yeah. 
because uh, it's not an easy place to be. Have you ever seen someone who's had to walk away from a situation? I know that's got to be heartbreaking, right? So someone who sees the need for change, they have courage, right? They've stepped out. They've spoken. They've said, man, things need to change. I'm tired of being the scapegoat. I'm not going to do that anymore. Um, I'm tired of being a hero. Like, we need to get this together. And all the other parties are just resistant. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, what's what's your experience been with that? Because there's no way that's an easy road to walk. Well, just in my own experience, after I found sobriety, yeah, I had to literally walk away from all of the rest of my family. What was that like? Like, take us through the emotional part of that. Well, no matter how much I tried to share my recovery with them, how important it was, that addiction was so enmeshed yeah. in my family. They had no desire to change. Yeah. They were pretty comfortable, no matter how much the drama, yeah. to just stay in it. Yeah. And uh, I had to begin to set some limits and some boundaries. And one of those was that I would not allow my mom or my stepdad to see my kids if they had been drinking. Hmm. They could not see my kids under the influence. Yeah. And as crazy as it sounds, they continued to drink for almost six months before they saw the kids. Wow. So you, I mean, you obviously set a really firm boundary. Had to. Yeah. Uh, just simply because I was not going to let my kids go through what I knew I could have put them through. Yeah. And what I went through. Yeah. So, I mean, it was tough to reinforce. I was told I didn't care. Yeah. I was being pushed and pressured by other family members because obviously my parents' story about why I wouldn't let them see them was a little bit different than ours. Sure. And uh, basically, when they had no desire to change, I couldn't allow them to be the anchor that kept me there. Yeah. And th- that was tough. Yeah, separate from it. And um, it's unfortunate, but it is really real that yeah. sometimes you just have to separate from the anchors that keep you stuck in your past. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't happen with most. Right. Okay. But it does happen. Yeah. Usually what happens, though, is if a person steps up and pushes through with their courage those initial onslaughts, the family will begin to turn. Mm. Because the light that they're shining on that, people start thinking, and it starts becoming kind of in their brain, and it creates something called cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. And people have to figure out what they're going to do to get comfortable. Right. So we're either going to have to make a decision to learn about this and do something about it or dive back in. Right. So families oftentimes will um, create supports for themselves in that process. Yeah. And when they can't, then instead of dealing with families that are biological, they create families of choice. Mm. And those families of choice become that super supports that they needed to yeah. be able to get this done. Yeah. So, I mean, we started here talking about how it's a family problem. I mean, we've, I mean, look where we're at now. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, addiction has the potential to absolutely destroy something that was designed to be really beautiful. Um, and that's tough. And those are sobering thoughts to even think about that. I mean, can you imagine? being a dad and your son is like, no, you can't see your grandkids. I mean, put the shoe on the other foot. If that doesn't hit home, I don't know what does. That's tough. Yeah. Yeah. And it was hard to set that. I can imagine. But I wasn't willing to budge on that either. Right. 
So you had your non-negotiables. Yeah, this is what it's going to be. I'm not going to put my kids through that. It's just not going to happen. Um, so when when one or two people within the family um, see the problems that the family system is creating and the others um, are not approachable or not on board with making those changes, you know, obviously you took it to a place where you separated. Are there steps that can be done before that, before you make that final step of, I've got to remove myself from the situation? Sure, and I tried a lot of those. And what are some of those? Well, the first one is never underestimate the power of one voice. Hmm. And I think a lot of times we become really hopeless in that because we don't think our voice counts. Hmm. It does. Yeah. Somebody is going to hear you. Yeah. And especially if you hold your guns on this with that level of courage. Right. We have got to do something. That will change all systems. Okay? Yeah. Um, so first of all, first and foremost, never discount the value of your voice. Yeah. On the same token, don't underestimate the power of your silence. Hmm. Your silence continues the process of getting ill. Wow. Because whatever you give permission to is what you're deciding you're willing to live with. Yeah. That's powerful. So you have to really begin to make some tough decisions about what you're willing to tolerate and live with. Yeah. And... Um, I had some really strong supports who helped me through that whole process where I wasn't trying to get preachy. I was just offering up solutions. Right. But I also was not willing to <clears throat> break the deal that I had made with making sure that my family was safe and my kids were not introduced to people who were in active drinking. Right. Around them. Yeah. Now, and again, if my parents wanted to drink, that wasn't a problem, but they could not see. Couldn't do it there. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Are there any other steps that you went through before you took the road that you did? Oh, sure. We had a lot of conversations. My wife and I went over and we talked to them. Um, my grandparents went with me to talk to them. Uh, talked to them about what the cost was going to be. Yeah. And what ends up happening sometimes is just absolute defiance. Hmm. And that's where my mom and stepdad were. Yeah. I was just a kid and I had no right to tell them what they could and couldn't do. Yeah. The other piece to that is just because you may have biological rights in your mind doesn't mean that I have to allow my children to go through that. Right. And uh, that was a huge awakening for them. Was it hard? Like, were there, were there times in those conversations that you were getting angry, frustrated? Like, did those emotions ever hit because... I know there's times when I'm deep in conversation or whatever, or if I get frustrated, um, the human in me wants to escalate the situation, but the 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 spirit man in me has to go chill, <laughs> bring it down, relax. You know what I mean? I mean, did you go through any of those feelings or emotions when you're having those conversations? And I ask you that because if there's people who are thinking, "Man, I need to have this conversation." Yelling and talking loudly is not necessarily communicating. Right. As crazy as it sounds, yeah. my sponsor and I had this discussion long before it ever took place. Okay. And he suggested one of the goofiest things I'd ever heard. Okay. But I was and now we're to, all going to hear it. I was willing yeah. to follow directions. <laughs> so what he suggested is because he knew my mom's relationship and my relationship. <clears throat> he suggested that I stand a mop up in the corner 
And practice? Practice <laughs> telling her what I needed her to hear. Okay. So anyway, I scripted it first. Wow. And my first script had all the emotion in it. Did you script the responses as well or just what you were going to say? I scripted what I knew she would say. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. And I knew what my reactions were going to be. Yeah. So that's why I scripted all the emotion in yeah. it. Yeah. Hers and mine. Mm-hmm. My second rewrite of that script was what I really wanted her to hear. Wow. Still had some of the emotion in it. Yeah. So I did a third rewrite. Mm. And it was just very matter of fact. It was, this is not negotiable. This is not for, uh, you know, argument. This is just, it just how, is. how it is. Yeah. And... Um, then it was not it, that emotion wasn't an issue, so I didn't have to worry about the anger. I didn't have to worry about the resentment. Yeah. Now that doesn't mean every day, when they didn't come over, that I didn't refeel that for a while. Yeah. Because I couldn't understand why drinking was more important than seeing the grandkids. Because yeah. all they had to do is just not do it for a couple of hours. But I had forgotten how life controlling it was for me. Yeah. But isn't that, in a, in a weird way, what you just said, isn't that really cool? You were removed from something to a place that was controlling, and you got to a place where you forgot how controlling it was. That is like a really beautiful statement. Well, that's where the freedom comes, with recovery. Yeah. And once I recognized for them, yeah, then I had this opportunity to really pray for them because I had that level of emotional understanding again right with them so yeah. i was no longer angry i was no longer resentful yeah now it was just wow yeah this really is as powerful as i thought it was yeah and began that that process and it took about six months yeah um but it worked because my parents didn't drink certain days whenever they knew that they were going to have the kids yeah now now remember as you're listening to this we talked a couple podcasts ago about options Right, if this doesn't work for you, this was my option. That was this was Mark's option. This is one option. Um, so again, in the in the um, the show notes, any of that kind of stuff. If you have questions, we'd love to direct you with resources. There's there's all sorts of uh, stuff that we'd be glad to just kind of help point you in the direction. Um, you know, but really seek out that counsel. Seek out. I mean, you had a mentor that helped walk this through with you. Seek that out and seek the right person out. You know. Um, don't underestimate the power of someone who's been there already because they know what to expect, you know? So what what encouragement could you offer the listening audience uh, today who might be thinking about making this journey or even realizing for the first time, I'm on this journey already and I didn't even realize I was? What, 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 what uh, encouragement could you offer them? Mine would either be if you haven't started this journey, get honest about what's really going on. If you have started this journey, continue that level of honesty. But most of all, never discount the power of your voice. Mm. The power of life and, de and death is in the tongue. Mm. And we have the power to speak life to things that are dying in us and around us. It just takes time, oftentimes, for things to change. Mm. So the third thing is don't lose hope mm. in that whole process. Yeah. Well, that's the cornerstone of recovery is hope. You know, that's the cornerstone of our faith is hope. Um, so if you're hearing this, and we've said this many times, there is hope. 
There is hope. There is hope. There is hope. You're not a lost cause. You're not to be discarded. You're not to be thrown away. You're worth it. And the people here that are in this room, uh, we do what we do, and we're doing this because we want you to know that you're worth it. Um, so thank you for joining us, Mark. Again, uh, thanks for talking about these uh, family dynamics and addiction within the family. And, um, yeah, we'll have you back again in here in a couple weeks, and we'll be, uh, we'll be going through some other stuff. So thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. The Support Recovery Podcast is sponsored by Ozarks Teen Challenge, a 15-month residential program located in Branson, West Missouri. If you're a parent, relative, or friend of a young man who is struggling with addiction or other life-controlling issues, please call Ozarks Teen Challenge at 417-272-3784 for more information or visit them at www.ozarksteenchallenge.com.